Welcome to the Tech Today podcast, powered by CEO Raider. It's your host, John Mayetta. We've been away for a little bit, so some stuff to catch up on. First one is GE, which is up today on the heels of CEO Larry Culp buying stock in the wake of accusations that GE is a fraud, which happened yesterday. Harry Markopoulos, the Madoff whistleblower, issued a report that was very critical of GE's accounting and talked about how GE didn't count for its full exposure, particularly around its reinsurance unit. And look, there's been chatter since you know, I was in college that, that GE manages earnings, that how does GE always do it in terms of making numbers? I'd say that chatter was most hot when, when Jack Welsh was in place. I remember being in, in business school and having a, a gentleman who had consulted for GE who said that GE has forgotten more about accounting principles and, and how to manage earnings than most people know about accounting. What does that mean? It's just indicative of sort of the, the sentiment that GE was doing something to always meet or beat analyst estimates, but they had different levers that they could pull, not all of which were operational. And then when I got into the business, I missed that whole Jack Welsh period, so I wasn't a, an analyst covering GE at the time. I was a student. And when I got out of school and got into the business, Jeff Emalt had been installed as CEO. At best, he was not an operator. You know, at, at, at best. And so folks that defend the stock, and we're not you know, long it, we're not short it, I just wanted to talk about it. But folks that the, defend it, GE is a great American company, yada, yada. Things are so great, they wouldn't be in the situation they're in. Forget yesterday's report. Just look at the operational performance and the stock performance over the past number of years. Yeah, as I've said before, my feeling was always that they should have went long technology and ramped up their efforts around investing in software, investing in healthcare IT. And I know healthcare is a focus, but not necessarily healthcare IT. Software is no longer a focus. They got rid of those assets. And instead, they're going long on old, heavy, industrialized assets. Is that where you want to be when software is clearly eating the world, to borrow a phrase from Mark Andreessen? And so I'll, I'll link to the report. I went through it. I'll, I'll link to it, 175-page report that's I think clearly lays out Markopoulos' findings, the report that he and his team assembled. Forget whether or not uh, the language may be inflammatory in terms of using words like fraud and such. Forget whether or not Markopoulos is being compensated for the report. He is. It is what it is. It's out there. So you've got to address it. And Culp addressed it by buying shares, which is good. But if you wanted to be devil's advocate, you could say, well, he's buying the stock to, to buy time. And hopefully, uh, you know, again, this is playing devil's advocate. From his, his perspective, if you wanted to take a sour view, you could say he's buying stock because he's trying to buy himself time to unwind some of this stuff and in the process maybe sell shares at a higher price. And by the time everything's out in the open, he's completely out of the stock. So I'll link to that report and you could make your own decisions. Capital One. How is Capital One founder, CEO Richard Fairbanks, still CEO in the wake of the Capital One breach? 100-plus million Capital One customers had their PII data breached. And there was news yesterday that the Capital One hacker may have breached over 30 other organizations. But my pushback on, on Fairbank is, in, in the wake of news yesterday, and I swear I read this news a couple weeks ago on the heels of the breach, that Capital One was slow in implementing uh, cybersecurity provisions. It, it had it had contracted with a, a cybersecurity vendor. You know, was slow to implement that technology. And without me being an insider, 
I can tell you this behavior is indicative of other companies. Companies just simply don't pay enough attention to cybersecurity. They don't have a great enough sense of urgency around protecting PII data. That has to be a top-of-mind priority if you're a CEO and if you're a board. And we wrote a piece at Tech Today several weeks ago, a few weeks ago. I think I'll link to that in the podcast show notes about what, what we would do to sort of operationalize cybersecurity. I mean, it, it really has to be run like a business unit. It can't just be something that comes up occasionally at a board meeting. It can't just be, oh, we'll hire a cybersecurity uh, exec and then just never talk about it. There's going to be daily dialogue between the head of cybersecurity and the CEO. It's got, that's going to be a, a direct report of the CEO. And that head of cybersecurity has to have a, at least a, a small alpha team of full-time direct reports where they're just constantly you know, monitoring, running drills around uh, hacking, you know, performing their own hacks to, see what, to try to identify weaknesses, chinks in the armor, so that they can proactively fix them before nefarious actors are able to expose those potential weaknesses. You've got to share information internally, regularly, report to the board regularly, report in, in various uh, operating meetings each month, kind of a state of the state. Share information outside of the four walls of the company so that you could have best practices. So there's a lot that you could do to be proactive around, around cybersecurity. So I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about was we put out a piece. I think I did a short, short form video and then a, uh, wrote an article at Tech Today around uh, three potential targets for activist shareholders. And those include AT&T, IBM, and Roper Technologies. Not that that's going to happen tomorrow, but that these three companies will be on the sort of in a, in a file for when the stocks for any of those companies potentially roll over. In the case of IBM, you could say, you know, the, the time is now because uh, the stock hasn't performed for, for years. So let's just start at the beginning. So AT&T, the issue there is the company acquired a subscale content asset in Time Warner and the crown jewel of that purchase being HBO. And you compare HBO to these other original content streaming services, whether it be Disney, which I think is king of the hill, and that'll be proven over time as, as they roll out Disney Plus and as their content that was licensed to Netflix comes off of Netflix, it's going to be clear who has the best portfolio in the industry. Netflix will remain a player, at least for the foreseeable future, given that they have a significant budget dedicated to original content. It doesn't mean that that original content is going to be hit content, which is why Disney has an edge. But they are allocating substantial dollars to developing original content. So they will have, they do have, and they will have Netflix, their own library of original content. Uh, and, and, and that budget's significantly larger, I would, I would think, than HBO's even under, under AT&T, given that AT&T's legacy business is a capital-intensive business. Then if you move over to IBM, I don't know that I re- included this in a note. It may have just been something that I tweeted out on top of the note. But we started advocating a few years ago that IBM acquire information services assets as a way to differentiate its business. So the company doesn't really have a history of acquiring application software companies. They have acquired a few, but nothing in the way of like an Oracle, for example. They've always wanted to play more in the infrastructure layer, more with data. And so, you know, I thought information services would be a great place to play. So companies like my old firm, Solera, companies like Verisk. Companies like FactSet, companies like IHS, now IHS Market. And the little note we put out 
was that at, at one time, now this was a ways ago, almost 10 years ago when I was a banker, but the information services companies that I had mentioned in this tweet and that I just recited off, and I, and I think I just recited all of them, there was a time when you could have acquired all those companies. I think maybe SSNC was one if I didn't mention them a moment ago. You could have acquired all of them for less than $10 billion in the aggregate, in the aggregate, 10 years ago. And they were substantial businesses 10 years ago. There was real revenue, real earnings, real cash flow, much better margins than what IBM had. And it would have been a way to create a unique, differentiated information services portfolio that touched capital markets, banking, and insurance, three verticals where, where IBM has a footprint. And instead, they, they kind of do nothing. They overpay for things like SPSS, Unica. They invest in, in, in Watson. They fold these acquired assets into Watson. They reorg Watson, I don't know how many times. They are a laggard, a laggard in cloud computing because they were late to the game. A laggard in analytics, a laggard in AI. And so you're, you're late to the game. And in AI, cloud, those are skill game. It's a skill game. And if you're not one of the top players you know, in cloud, I'd argue it's AWS, Azure. Those would be the two. Google's you know, kind of next, next layer down, tier two player. As far as consumer AI, Google would be the leader there. But IBM doesn't register anywhere on the AI scale or the cloud scale. They are a laggard. And it's kind of game over because if you're not one of the leading companies, it, it just, you, you can't make up ground by spending money because the guys that are in the lead are generating more cash flow than you are. The stocks are working more than yours is. So if you do start to catch up to a point where those companies need to invest, they can invest and frankly outspend you. But even more than just the, the capital required to invest. When you're talking about AI, it's, you know, as we've talked about before in a podcast, it's it, the, the efficacy of the, of the algorithms are more a function of the, the, the data, the quality of the data and the amount of data that's coming into the system that then helps the algorithms train themselves. The machine learning piece, the deep learning piece. And Google's at a place where IBM's never going to catch them in that regard. The amount of data they have coming into their AI machine learning platforms as a result of Google searches, voice queries, and so forth, images with Google Lens, things like this, uh, the assistant, you know, I mentioned voice. So they're capturing quality data at a faster rate and at much greater scale than IBM is. And IBM going out and spending $34 billion on Red Hat isn't going to get, isn't going to help them make up uh, the, the, the difference in cloud computing or on the AI side. So what I'm saying, it's a long-winded way to, of saying that IBM ought to just have acquiesced as it relates to AI and the cloud computing game. It would have been better to just focus on software and services. And you can use somebody else's AI. There's no shame in having a, a portfolio of some of the companies they had mentioned, Solera, Verisk, IHS Market, and the like, in porting the various software platforms inside of those companies onto Azure, onto AWS, and using Microsoft Azure as an example for core AI. And then your IP is sort of the, the decision support systems that sit on top of the core AI, the, the workflow, the user interface, uh, the customer relationships you have that enable you to process you know, claims data, as an example. So everything that sits on top of the, the core AI platform supplied by Azure, in this example, is your IP. Because at the end of the day, you know, we've written about this, AI is going to be like electricity. It's going to be infused in, in everything. And there are only going to be a handful of core platforms. 
Beyond that, all the IP and the value is going to sit on top of those core platforms. And that's an enormous opportunity. And that's where IBM should have invested as opposed to chasing cloud. It being what, number 10? And then last is, is Roper Technologies, ROP. And that's one where the stock has worked. The, the financials look great. It's just more of a strategic issue where they are acquiring subscale assets, subscale software assets. Uh, iPipeline was one from last week. Large opportunity there, but it, just because a larger company now owns iPipeline doesn't mean that that, that, that market opportunity is going to be monetized in the near term. You can't force a market before it's ready. Uh, there was one that was acquired some months ago, I want to say out of the UK. I believe it was a simulation software company, one that kind of looked like Gansas, if I recall. And rather than spend small dollars on a player that's number three in a market, number five in a market, number 10 in a market, despite what I said about GE at the beginning of this podcast, one thing that I think Jack Welch got right was you've got to be kind of number one or number two in a market in order to capture the lion's share of revenue and, and profitability. So I think Rope would be much better served pursuing leaders in two or three industry verticals under the software umbrella, under their software effort, and becoming number one or number two in those verticals to the extent that's possible when you're competing against guys like like Oracle as an example or Workday. But the picking verticals, hell, they, they could they could pursue the the um, a similar strategy to what I advocated for, for IBM, although those assets that I had talked about that IBM could have acquired for less than $10 billion in the aggregate some years ago, some of those are now trading at $20 billion valuations. So a little too uh, large for Roper to pursue. But along those same lines, Roper could pursue larger assets that would give them the benefit of economies of scale. And we talk about in our piece what some of those, those benefits are. And I'll link to that piece as well. So we've got the GE report from yesterday that I'll link to. We've got the uh, cybersecurity piece that we wrote around Capital One and how we, we would stand up a, a cybersecurity organization to operationalize that effort. And then we've got the third piece will be the, um, the three companies where we think activist investors are keeping tabs that I'll link to. That's all for now. See you next time.